Welcome to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum in today for Jerome McDonald. And I'm Monica Eng, and we're both coming to you live from Beverly on Chicago's Southwest Side. So two weeks before the start of summer, spring is no longer a rumor. We actually have some spring-like weather. And Monica, today is a perfect nexus for me because two of my favorite things, my mom and bees, are part of the show. So I grew up about one and a half miles from Wild Blossom Meadery, where we are today on 9030 South Hermitage. And so my mom may show up in any moment, and when she does, I'll be sure to introduce her. As a matter of fact, I think she's pulling up right now, so, wow. we'll talk, so I'll say hi to her in a moment. <laughs> but also, I'm in love with the honeybee, and bees make me cry, and... Um, They may be the animal most important to our survival, and they face extinction. So we're going to listen to a little clip from Bill McKibben as he narrates a part of the film, The Dance of the Honey Bee, and then you'll know why bees filmed in super slow motion make Steve Bynum cry. Let's think about bees in a hive. They go out every day when the temperature's high enough. They're not like other farm animals. They're this weird wonderful cross between wild and domestic and they head out into the open world and they come back as it were with reports about that world you know what it's like uh, miles away Uh, so one little bee yard someplace is a kind of hub for understanding a whole huge swath of territory understanding whether it's being farmed well or treated as a kind of monoculture, whether it's being saturated in pesticides or whether it's producing a wide, beautiful variety of uh, flowers of all kinds. There are sort of accomplices in figuring out how healthy and together uh, our landscapes really are. I mean, honeybees are like everything else on our planet uh, under all kinds of duress. I mean, The world that we jointly inhabit is changing with enormous speed. So none of the patterns that uh, any of us are used to exist in the same way anymore. Bees are under threat because landscapes keep changing. So, uh, I mean, what we can do to help bees is exactly the same thing we can do to help ourselves. Uh, Try to slow down the pace of change in the world around us. Uh, Human societies aren't going to be able to cope with rapid climate change, and neither can most animal societies, uh, bees included. Uh, Human societies can't cope turning everything into a monoculture, uh, neither can bees. They're a remarkable reminder of the need for a certain kind of stability in terms of things like climate, and the need for a certain kind of variety in terms of landscape and, and what's around us. We need to be making, at this point in our society, some wise decisions about the years ahead. And so we need to be using uh, some of that same focused and determined decision-making that that bees have successfully employed over a great many millennia. I think most beekeepers are fascinated by bees themselves. This perfect example of the idea that humans could cooperate with another species to both of their mutual benefit. Uh, We don't have very many examples of that in our uh, society, but that's what a beehive is. That was from the film, The Dance of the Honeybees. We'll tweet that video out, and you can also see it on Worldview's Facebook page. And Monica, speaking of beekeepers, we have one with us now. Yes, we do. And, you know, Steve, you hear a lot about the local craft beer movement, but you don't hear so much about local establishments that are devoted to brewing mead, M-E-A-D, a beverage with just as rich a history. So I'm so happy to welcome Wild Blossom Meadery owner Greg Fisher. Welcome yeah. to Worldview. Hey, thanks for having me, Dan. Okay, so I didn't know what mead was until I was doing this show. So, Greg, what is mead and well, how is it mead made? Mead is basically the oldest fermented beverage on earth. It's actually a a wine or can be like a beer fermented from honey. Mm. And, and why did you decide to start making it? Yeah, um, I, well, I grew up on a, on a farm upstate New York, and um, I became a beekeeper. And also at about the same time, my grandfather made wine and became a winemaker. 
So I uh, got into the wine business quite you know, heavily in, in uh, Manhattan and was, moved here to Chicago and met uh, Ray Daniels, who was a craft beer brewer and a mead maker. And I tasted one of his meads, and about three seconds later, I said, that's what I want to do. <laughs> it was so good. It was so delicious. And, and what's that process? So it's a real simple. It's honey, water, and yeast. And um, every flower makes different honey, so you have a multitude of different flavors that you're going to come up with by just changing the honey. And then that honey can be combined with uh, hibiscus flowers. It can be combined with cinnamon. It can be um, combined with blueberries or strawberries or whatever you want to combine it with, you can. (laughs) Okay, so uh, Greg... uh this is obviously the way you do it is an environmentally sustainable process. So what are the ways that you look out for the bees and the environment and ecosystem while you're doing this? Well, you know, bees alone are the the keepers of the environment. Uh, You know, with our mead, uh, the bees will pollinate about 2 million flowers to produce one bottle of mead. When they pollinate those 2 million flowers, that turns into 40 million new seeds, which produces that many new flowers. So mead itself or honey is the one food item that actually completes the cycle of nature. It's not, you know, you don't have to rip down a forest to produce it. You just need a clean environment. And, you know, we don't move our bees all over the place. We take them to Michigan uh, on a little field trip for some blueberries, but we, we um, are not, you know, constantly putting them under stress. So we're trying to keep them in, a, in an environment which they're not stressed out so much. Okay, so um, we have a sample of your mead right here, and I'm going to taste it for the first time. So tell me about this mead product and um, what sets your product apart. So, so this is our signature mead. It's our, um, we call it Sweet Desire. It's a bourbon-aged, barrel-aged mm-hmm. bourbon mead. So it's, Love it's, the it's, name it's, bourbon in anything. Yeah, so. it basically sits in a, in a used bourbon cast for a year and picks up the flavor of the American oak plus the bourbon, and uh, it, it's, it's a wonderful, so much like a port. All right, I'll sample it. Here and it's go. a beautiful color of bourbon there, whereas the other one looks, you know, as clear. Oh, no, that is water. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, mm. It's delicious, and it has a, a real cutting sort of um, texture to it. How would you guys describe that flavor? It's, uh, you, you know... Um, American oak has a lot of vanillas in it, so it has vanilla tones, but the inside of a bourbon barrel is is actually charred, so it caramelizes those sugars in the wood, so you get the caramelization, you get the vanillas, you get the the alcohol from the, the bourbon. But, you know, the interesting about mead, it, it can be dry, just like a Chardonnay. It can be sweet, you know, just like a port. So, you know, it all depends on um, how the mead maker makes it. I always say, you know, wine is made in the vineyard, to make great Cabernet, you need really good Cabernet grapes. And beer is basically made in the brewery. Um, but mead is actually made in the meadow and in the meadery um, because you need a good mead maker and you also need great honey. So, Greg, uh, we heard the uh, clip from the video earlier, Dance of the Honeybees, and it's really gorgeous. And it talks about you know issues like climate, uh, climate colony collapse have decimated uh, the bee population if you've actually had some problems of your own with the bees yeah yeah we've seen i mean i've been raising bees since i've been about six years old Mm -hmm. and um you know when i was younger there bees would always be around you'd always see uh i mean you hives would last for years and years and years and now uh if a beekeeper has a hive that lasts more than two years it's 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 amazing the one good thing that we have with bees is they're so resilient. You know, you can, they can get beat up, and once that queen starts laying, she can lay 1,400 eggs a day, and she can repopulate very quick. But, you know, it's, it's a fight now because they're trying to repopulate, and then they're getting knocked down, you know. And so you mentioned that you, you brought them to Michigan, and that, that's to pollinate the actual blossoms on the blueberries. And we actually have a little, a few sounds, a few seconds of sound of that. It sounds like a lot of bees there. Yeah, yeah each hive is about 80,000 bees in it. Holy moly. Mm. And, and so, so actually, you had this past winter, you had a big collapse in your bee population. Yes. So what happened there? Well, that, I mean, it's part of the climate going to 20 below zero. I right. mean, a lot of our hives did survive, but, 
you know, with that cold temperature and a lot of the other factors of, um, with, with, you know, maybe new pesticides and there's a, a varroa mite that had, had mutated years ago that we're always fighting. So, you know, all those factors coming together just, you know, knocked out the hives. We're broadcasting live from the Wild Blossom Meadery on the southwest side, and it's the only meadery in Chicago as well as the city's first winery. With us is Wild Blossom's owner, Greg Fisher, and coming up in a few minutes, you'll hear from his wife, who's one of the most active light pollution activists in Chicago. So, Greg, uh, as I mentioned earlier in the show, uh, I grew up a mile and a half from here. We're in the Beverly neighborhood, and actually my mom just showed up. Say hi, Mom. Hi. Hi. And so um, it's really interesting because as I was growing Growing up, this was not an integrated area of Chicago. You've been in this area for 30 years, and you talk about how the neighborhood has changed, and also um, how are you getting along with your neighbors with all these bees? It's good. Actually, my my, my neighbors uh, love the bees. I don't think they like about they don't like not getting parking. <laughs> parking is the biggest thing here, but um, the neighborhood has been great. Everybody really enjoys coming down here it's they, they call it a gem in the neighborhood because mm. it's a way people can they don't have to go downtown to, that's right and you know we have a beautiful patio in the back with uh the dan ryan woods in the back with his so i grew up coming to the dan ryan woods okay. every holiday fourth of july and so to be up against the dan ryan woods that's around 87th and western heading south on western avenue it's a beautiful area and then you're sort of you're right by a metro station actually uh we're not far from metro station if i look right up the road yeah there. so from downtown we're, we're a 15 20 minute train ride so it's great anyway. so how do you see yourself as um someone bringing various communities together because you are at a nexus because you there's just to the west of here you have um oak lawn evergreen park and then you have the Beverly neighborhood, and then you have a mostly African-American neighborhood to your east. Can you talk about the integration of these various communities? Uh, oh, it's great, because everybody, we're so diverse here, so everybody comes here as just a place to relax. And, you know, we have all different types of events. We'll have everything from jazz to house music to um, violin players to classic piano players. Uh, you know, it's, it's a great way for people just to get along and just just kick back and chill and enjoy the environment the you know major taylor bike trail runs in our backyard so people can take their bikes out get some good exercise mm. and it's 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 truly chicago because it's a mix of everybody and later in the show we're going to talk about a bike trail that extends from here all the way to the south suburbs so if jerome mcdonald was here he'd be really excited about nice. that interview <laughs> Last question. A lot of people you know, are getting chickens. A lot of people have gardens. But some are interested in actually beekeeping. What would be your tips for them? Yeah, well, bees are great because it's, you know, chickens, you can't go away for three weeks. <laughs> bees, you can go away for three weeks. It's, you know, there's so much information you can learn um, through taking classes and um, watching YouTube videos. And it's, you know, it's great for the environment because the bees are pollinating flowers, creating new seeds that help the wildlife, help make the world, world greener. Well, this reminds me, um, John Chrysostom, a fifth century Christian saint, wrote that the bee is more honored than other animals, not because she labors, but because she labors for others. So thank you, Greg, for sharing about these beautiful animals and their labors for thank us. Thank you. And I say uh, my mead is uh, the best honor I can give a honeybee. Oh, thanks so much. Thank you. Greg, owner, Greg Fisher is the owner of the Wild Blossom Meadery. Thanks for your hospitality and teaching us so much about mead, honey, and bees. Thank you. We're broadcasting live from the southwest side of Chicago at Chicago's only meadery and first winery. We'll be back with more from, from Meadery with a conversation about light pollution. So stay with us on WBEZ 91.5. I'm Steve Bynum here with Monica Ng, and you've been listening to Worldview.
This is Worldview on WBEZ 91.5. I'm Steve Bynaman for Jerome McDonald, and we're coming to you live from the Wild Blossom Meteor in Beverly on the southwest side of Chicago. And with me is Monica Ng, who, in addition to being the Worldview food, health, and culture contributor, is a reporter for Curious City. That's right, Steve. And last year for Curious City, I did kind of a health and science story about Chicago's new LED streetlights and some of the issues with light pollution around them. And today, uh, we're going to be talking to one of the city's most influential light pollution activists. Who, in the interest of disclosure, happens to be the wife of Greg Fisher, the mead maker from the last segment. That, there's that. <laughs> and so we thought it was a great opportunity to talk to both of them in the same show. Well, that sounds great. And so first, let's get some background on the investigation that you did. About a year ago, WBEZ's Curious City Show took on a question about LED streetlights. Like a lot of other cities around the world, Chicago's recently begun replacing its old streetlights with more energy-efficient LEDs. In general, they use a lot less wattage, so they can save cities a lot on electricity bills. Former Mayor Rahm Emanuel hoped they'd even reduce crime. Because you can brighten the lights at a very high level, and so it complements our safety issues while saving uh, the taxpayers $100 million in costs. But not everyone's convinced. Activists say the LEDs Chicago's now installing have way too much so-called blue light. They say this blue light spectrum, which actually looks white, can cause all sorts of problems for health, the environment, and even stargazing. One of those concerned people is now 7th grader J.J. Nauchi. He goes to Ida B. Wells Elementary School in Bronzeville, and he contacted Curious City last year. I love astronomy because of the stars, most of all. And the LEDs they're putting in in our city, Chicago, is actually blocking the stars so that no one can see it. But his concerns go well beyond stargazing. They include things like melatonin suppression and problems with animal migration. As you can probably tell, J.J.'s not your average seventh grader. Last year, he even picked up the phone and started calling Mayor Rahm Emanuel about the lights. Here he is last year in Curious City. Well, the mayor couldn't answer because he was busy. Busy doing what? <laughs> but his assistant said, oh, the mayor's not here. Call back another day. So I did and finally got through. Then we talked for, I don't know, like 15 minutes. Well, I told him about light pollution, what it is, because he didn't know what light pollution was. Told him... He has the power to minimize light pollution in the city of Chicago. And then he said he will consider it. So after J.J. reached out, we looked into it. It turns out he was mostly right. Scientists we talked to said outdoor LED lights with a high blue light spectrum were a danger to drivers, animals, and people. The American Medical Association even put out a statement saying cities should keep blue light as low as possible. They talked about problems with glare that can make driving harder, melatonin suppression, which can contribute to diseases like diabetes, depression, and even cancer, and problems with the environment. So what happened? Well, at the end of our story, city officials said they would look into some new street lamps with lower blue light levels. And that made our questioner, JJ, pretty hopeful. Here's what he said at the time. I think we are on the verge of stopping light pollution, so... The only thing we can do right now is cross our fingers. So J.J. was hoping the city would actually try these new street lamps with less blue light. They're made by a company called Lumacana, run by a guy called Dave Mitchell. He's been in touch with the city since our story ran last year, and he even dropped off some lights for the city early this year. But so far, officials haven't committed to trying them out. So a few weeks ago, Mitchell invited some activists, some journalists like me, and Alderman Scott Wagsback to meet him in Humble Park at dusk. He wanted to show us the differences between his light and the lights the city's now installing. And at the end of it, Alderman Wagsback seemed really impressed. I think it's outstanding, and I I really want to see the city step in and test some of these. For the police to be able to better see at night, for anybody that's driving. And if you look at these, the the changing light under each one of the older, either the older LEDs or, um, you know, the 50-year-old lights that we have here, it is night and day. The alderman said he might even suggest to Mayor Lori Lightfoot that she pilot a few lights in her neighborhood. I think I'll talk to her and see if the (laughs) the new mayor will install one of these on her block. We also checked in this week with the editor of the American Medical Association Guidance on LED Streetlights, Dr. Mario Mata. 
We told him all about these new low blue lights, and he said they sounded like a big improvement over the current Chicago lights. Much more tolerable. So what would his current guidance be? I would say put them up in the street, put them up on another street with uh, 3,000K, see the difference, and I would overwhelmingly bet that the citizens would choose them. But even with the support of Alderman Scott Wagsback, these low blue lights have not been getting much attention. The Chicago Department of Transportation oversees the replacement program. But WBZ's had a hard time getting any straight answers from the department over if or when a pilot on the new lights might happen. So we checked back in with question asker JJ this week to see what he thought about all of it. We met him at a restaurant in Bronzeville near his home. It, to be honest, makes me feel really angry. They're choosing the wrong lights when they could be choosing one that's way better for the citizens of Chicago. We asked what he'd say to the new mayor if he could get a hold of her too. Mayor Lightfoot, I hope that you would be open-minded about Chicago's light pollution and you could speak out towards getting new streetlights, which are better for the people of Chicago. Well, first, welcome, Audrey Fisher. Hi, happy to be here. So, Audrey, how did you first get involved with this issue? Well, at the beginning, I was part of Chicago Conservation Corps, and I was given the opportunity to work with children at the Taste of Chicago with my conservation booth. And I had a my rain barrel and my compost bin, and I had a, um, a three-foot-long photograph of the starry night sky in the Milky Way. And I found out that not one child who came to my booth was about, about 400 children did not recognize the photograph of the starlight. And, and, and neither did the parents. Only two adults could tell me that was a photograph of stars. And they wondered, did their stars die? And that's because in Chicago, we don't see the kind of night sky that, that you might if you live out you know, a lot farther. Right. So um, I thought that children should, should see the stars if they could, especially if we could just fix the lights to do it. And then later on, I became more interested, or I kind of tripped on it, that uh, light pollution is also harmful to human health. It can interfere with, for example, um, I happen to have a cancer history, it will, it will render your chemotherapy ineffective. That is serious. It will increase certain rates of cancers, type 2 diabetes. Through melatonin suppression. Exactly. And, and then I was learning more about the, uh, the interference with, with the ecosystems. And even, you know, even uh, the environment. Bird migration. Insects. Exactly. So then, you know, I decided to uh, spend 100% of my focus on this, you know, as a layperson, going, meeting the experts, going to the seminars where the top uh, people in the world, the experts in the world would be. And, uh, you know, I've really dedicated my life now. And, you know, the cool thing about this it's almost a dream come true that for the very first time in human history, we have the ability to restore starlight over a city. We have the technology and we have the reasonings why it must be done. And that's what we looked at in the story. We, we, this, this young man said, the lights we're installing are going to be a problem. They have too much blue light. They're not going to really improve our light pollution. And what we found out was that, that basically he's right and that there is now a different light that the city of Chicago can install in its, um, in its uh, pursuit of, of uh, getting rid of about a quarter million of our street lights, that there is a light they can install that will actually reduce that light pollution by about half. You know, it, it would be a dream come true if the city would do this, because we are installing the largest installation of LED streetlights in the world. I didn't know it was the largest. Wow. 265,000 uh, fixtures. 
Now, I should say that we did invite the Chicago Department of Transportation to come on the program to speak about this issue, and they declined to appear, but they did give us a statement. Monica, you have an excerpt of that. Right. So what we asked them was, um, now that this, uh, this, this lower blue light light is available, now that it's in your possession to try out, are you going to try it out? And I have to say, after two months of asking the city, will you try out this light, they have refused to say if or when they will try it out. And the young boy in that story whom we promised at the end of the story that the city said they will try it out, he feels really angry and betrayed. I spoke to him the other day, and he said, the city officials said that they would try this light. But just this morning, I got an email from Mike Claffey at the Chicago Department of Transportation who said that... They're going to buy 31,000 more lights later this year at the higher blue light level, which is 30, a 3,000 K. They're going to be buying more, 31,000 more. But at the end of the year, as they look at buying new lights, they might try out this other light. They won't say they will. They won't give it time. And that's kind of disappointing. I also talked to Scott Wagsback who is um, a, uh, you know, the alderman, now the finance chair, and he says he wants a pilot of this in his ward. But I'm still not getting many answers. So I wanted to get your reaction as someone who's been working toward this, working toward getting the city to consider a lower blue light, now that you hear that they're buying 31,000 more of the higher blue light, the 3,000, and they won't say if or when they'll try the, the lower blue light. How does it make you feel? First of all, Every single light that the city has already installed should be taken down because they're needlessly harmful to human health, the environment, and ecosystems. How dare CDOT disregard the AMA warnings and thousands of scientists, research scientists across many different sciences across the board. They all say this the same thing. Now, I've heard a big brag that, oh, we're getting big rebates on these streetlights, these bright white LED streetlights. Well, you know, I'll bet you they could get some pretty big rebates on lead pipes for our water as well. This is just as harmful. Audrey Fisher is a co-owner at, here at Wild Blossom Meadery, and she's also an activist in the light pollution issue. And we do have a statement from the Chicago Department of Transportation where it said, before selecting these new state-of-the-art LED lights for the program, the city thoroughly researched the issue and relied on the guidance of national experts, including the U.S. Department of Energy, the American Medical Association, Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, and the Illuminating Engineering Society. The lights we selected comply with the AMA's guidance that recommends use of LED street lights that are 3,000K or less. So, Monica, you have an update. I do have an update. I just spoke to Dr. Mario Mata, who chaired that committee that came out with that American Medical Association recommendation, and he said the only reason we said 3,000 K was because that was the lowest at the time in 2016. Today, he would urge the city, urge the city to use 2,200. He wrote to me, lower the better. Canada has an amber-based LED used in Quebec. At Quebec, actually, that's 2,200 and has no blue whatsoever, that is the perfect solution. That comes from the American Medical Association. And not only that, AMA said two remarks, 3,000 K or or lower. They also said minimize or eliminate the blue spectrum. And Chicago happened to pick a a 3,000 K fixture where the level of blue is closer to 4 K than it is 3 K. So shame on them. So we, we would hope, we'd hope to be able to play all the quotes from Alderman Scott Wagsback and J.J. Nauchi and uh, Dr. Mata, but uh, I had to paraphrase them here. So, um, you know, at the Curious City, we, we like to not just do the story, but do an update. Like, so if we promised this young man that the city said it would look into it and that it would definitely consider these lights, a year later we wanted to see, was that true? And I, I wish I could be bringing better news. So, Monica, where can we uh, hear that report uh, that we weren't able to play today? Um, we're, it's going to be at uh, wbez.org slash Curious City, and then we can tweet it out on the, uh, the Worldview uh, Twitter. So going forward, Audrey, what do you want to see? 
How would you like to well, see Well, you know, there's going to be a city on this planet that's going to take the leadership role. I always, I always hoped it would be my city, the city of Chicago. You know, we had the cover of the National Geographic magazine that said, end of night, the picture of Chicago, because Chicago is a poster child of light pollution. And I thought it would be so awesome if Chicago would become the leader and actually show the solution and have a starlight city. And the research shows that if the light pollution is strong enough to suppress, mel- to suppress starlight, it is also strong enough to suppress melatonin, which is a trigger of so many of these cancer issues and things like that. I should note that, um, that you know, everybody does say we do get a lot of blue light from our tablets, from our phones, from our computers. A lot of people are putting those, uh, those uh, screens on now. It's called Night Shift on the Apple products. Um, but when you're an animal outdoors and when you're walking outdoors and driving, you can't put such a filter on. Uh, what can people, if, if people want to contact a city representative, what would, what would you suggest for them to do if they're concerned about this issue? Yeah, don't be silent. Now is the time to talk, because as we sit, harmful lighting is being installed. They're putting us under needless harm. Why are they doing that? I would surely like to know what's going on behind the scenes. And we'll be following up on this story and another example of how the children shall lead us. Audrey Fisher is an activist on the issue of light pollution, and she's also the co-owner here of Wild Blossom Meadery, where we're broadcasting from today. Thank you so much for talking with us about this issue. Thanks for having me. I wish it were better news. Coming up next on WBEZ 91.5, we'll hear about a fascinating historical art project right here in Beverly. I'm Steve Bynum here with Monica Ang, and you've been listening to Worldview from WBEZ 91.5 FM. Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum. In today for Jerome McDonald. And I'm Monica Ang. And we're coming to you live from the Wild Blossom Meadery in Beverly on the Southwest Side. You know, Steve, people on the North Side sometimes forget that the South Side, they've got a baseball team too, right? Oh yeah, the Chicago White Sox. So my mom is here because I grew up a mile and a half from here. And she remembers that my great uncle, Uncle James, we called him Uncle Bus, he would force me to go to White Sox games, even though we were Cub fans, lifelong <laughs> Cub fans, diehard Cub fans. Those were some of the great memories of my life, and I'll never forget it. Well, one of the most resonant chapters in, in White Sox history, for better or for worse, is not the 2005 World Series win, but a huge gambling scandal that happened 100 years ago this year. That's right. So it's called the Black Sox scandal and famous players like Shoeless Joe Jackson. We've all heard about him. And so there's an exhibit about the scandal opening this week at the Beverly Arts Center here on the south side called the Black Sox a century later. And it runs through the end of July. And with us is the creator of the exhibit, Tom Ross. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Great to be here. So let's just start at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about the 1919 White Sox and the scandal. Well, the thing to remember uh, is that there were three professional sports at the time, horse racing, boxing, and baseball, and they were all corrupt. Even baseball had gamblers in it, and there were uh, ballplayers who had taken bribes to lose uh, specific games. So there was nothing unusual about that. So in 1919, uh, right after we came out of the victory of World, in World War I, uh, the, the teams in the league were primed for something like this because the pay had been uh, low all across in both leagues, not right. just the White Sox. Now, we should say this is before the rise of the Yankees and Babe Ruth, and so the White Sox were a powerhouse team. So that's why so much attention was brought on this. And also there's a connection to the mafia at Chicago, of course. And so um, Arnold Rothstein uh, was the person that was said, uh, a, a gangster from New York, who was said to be involved in paying off these players or threatening these players, or however you want to look at it, to basically throw the games. Yeah, Arnold Rothstein was from New York and is regarded as the 
the grandfather of the American Mafia. Uh, but he was smart enough to know how to cover his bases. So when he was pulled into Chicago in 1921 uh, to be questioned, he was able to uh, get himself out of that fix. Now, you've looked at a lot of uh, historical events, and this is just one of them. And, and there, there was corruption in sports before the Black Sox scandal. There's corruption after the Black Sox scandal. What in particular about this story has made it so resonant for so long in the popular imagination? Well, I, I think coming out of World War I, America was on such a high uh, with the victory over the Germans that... Uh, this becomes the loss of innocence. This is the, when the little boy allegedly says, say it ain't so, Joe. He's talking a lot more about uh, just, you know, you, you hurt my feelings. This is about massive betrayal. And I think that uh, for a game that is now or was regarded as America's pastime, this is a, a crime that is kind of esoteric. It's just on a different level than almost any other. And uh, I think that this is what resonates so much. So it's been 100 years, and one thing we should mention is that these ballplayers, a number of them, they went to trial, and they were exonerated. They were found not guilty, but uh, Major League Baseball has took away the World Series from them, um, will not allow players like Shoeless Joe Jackson to be in the Hall of Fame. And so even though that um, legally they were absolved, there's still a stain in the mark that lasts to this day. Oh, for sure. Um you know, you can look at it in the, the kind of a Faustian way where you have the, the devil in the form of either Charlie Comiskey or Arnold Rothstein, and the ballplayers are the, the ones who make the deal with the devil. But I think baseball, it came to that point where they said, who's going to come to a game if the gamblers have determined who's going to win or lose? And so this is, again, that loss of innocence. And then, of course, it's Babe Ruth who shows up as a messiah right. with the long ball and he beats baseball into the form that we know today and this is the guy that uh, brought it back and I've always thought that there's some very fortunate reason somehow that this guy appeared on the scene when he did and the players themselves having been exonerated it was the newly elected first commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis who said regardless of the verdict of juries and they were gone. And as a matter of fact now it's come out that Landis actually knew that um, these players, more than likely, or at least a significant amount of them, may not have been involved, but it didn't matter. He was concerned about um, the ethics and about the reputation of the game, and it seemed like, according to those who are defenders of the players, that Landis was more interested in defending uh, the reputation of baseball than actually getting to the facts or the truth. Well, the, the great thing about the story is there is a lot of mystery of, of motivation and interpretation. And uh, I, I believe that Landis, however harsh it was, he, had to do, he did the right thing by dropping that guillotine and saying, like Harry Trumer, the buck stops here. Yet, as we see <laughs> between Pete Rose and Barry Bonds and this sort of thing, that it never, uh, it never, it never leaves the human condition. We're talking with Tom Ross. He's an artist, historian, and writer originally from San Francisco. And he's opening an exhibit at the Beverly Arts Center about the Black Sox scandal, which is running through July 21st. Monica. Okay. Let's get... All right, let's get down to the paintings. <laughs> we could talk about baseball all day long. Well, you and I could go back and forth. All <laughs> yeah, right. um, so so how, how do you think painting, as opposed to maybe like photography, can really capture this experience and this event? Well, in my show, I have both my original paintings and reprints of many photographs of the real guys. So the photograph represents reality and historical truth. This is what they look like. But I think art's job... Uh, and this is poetry, music, movies, whatever, is to interpret these things, not to just replicate. And I think through art you can add distortion and color, and uh, as they do in the movie Field of Dreams, all of a sudden you, you're, you're looking at mythology. This is, I mean, dead ball players coming out of the cornfield. Mm. I mean, that's pretty right. neat. But so th I think that's, that's what I was trying to get in my show, was the black and white of the photographs, and yet the color comes out in the paintings, not in the photography. And it's as if the myth itself is the truly more colorful uh, aspect of the story. So tell us, uh, be a little more descriptive about some of um, the work. What are we going to see? And what are we going to see? And uh, I was reading about one of the um, photos or paintings where the manager 
is covering his face and how you were very descriptive about that. Can you talk about that? Please? Well, at, at, when you look at it, uh, the manager was uh, Kid Leeson. So these ballplayers who play for him become his sons, his children. This is uh, kind of the Oedipus thing. And when it's over and he realizes that eight of his own children betrayed him, this had to be uh, as shocking to him as it was to Comiskey and the rest of the nation. So there's a lot of emotion uh, in that. And I think uh, when you look at a story like the Black Sox, which was, is as deep and as wide as Lake Michigan, mm-hmm. as an artist, I had to skip the stone across the top of the lake, and each skip is one of those paintings. So I highlight, it's like a Reader's Digest where you highlight just these, the points that uh, define much more. So it's reducing it down to, uh, in this case, about 47 paintings. I think it's important to give some context to this during that time because um, baseball players are revered now. They're some of the highest paid players. I mean, they're multimillionaires. Baseball is extremely popular, even though it's coming second and third, fourth to other sports. But during that time, baseball players were considered scandalous people. As a matter of fact, uh, baseball players were almost considered like sex workers or prostitutes, there will be signs that would say, no dogs, no actors, no prostitutes, no baseball players at some reputable establishments. Well, uh, one of the uh, most important of the early ball players was Christy Mathewson, who was a pitcher for the New York Giants and is a Hall of Famer. And he was from Bucknell. So when he became a pro, all of a sudden you had a professional baseball player who had actually graduated from college. Mm. He made the game, I guess I can take my girlfriend now or my wife, because he made it uh, a gentleman's game. So, and they were just coming out. As a matter of fact, he covered the 1919 uh, World Series, and he suspected something was wrong. But yeah, I mean, these guys were coming out of. Uh, from, they were going from the saloons to the, the spotlight. Right, and a lot of these guys, these were the, these were the people who did not fight in World War One for whatever reason, and so there was a little bit of um, uh, there was this projection or idea that this aura that. Um, they wanted to just play this game rather than go fight for their country. So there are all these other issues that are sort of swirling around that time. Which yeah, uh, I think uh, three uh, major league players were killed in the war. Uh, at, in center field at the old polo grounds, there was a monument to uh, Eddie Grant, who mm-hmm. had been killed. And a lot of these guys, the deal was either you work or you fight. So a lot of these guys went to work where they could just play baseball for whatever company they were with. Now, I know you attended uh, the, the artist's opening at the Beverly Arts Center last night, but for folks who won't have you there to kind of give them some background on the paintings, you've created an app so that they can take a look at the work and, and get some background on it? Yeah, we, uh, each painting has a little paragraph uh, describing who it is. So if you read those paragraphs, you get a journeyman's understanding of, of the scandal. But uh, a friend of mine developed what we call the uh, augmented reality and we were trying to get the icons on the wall. So if you download it onto your camera and you point it to, to one of these 16 paintings, my face comes on your cell phone. <laughs> and I start talking about parts of the, of the subject of the painting that are not necessarily written out on the descriptions. So, Tom, what is it about baseball that's just so ingrained in the American DNA? I mean, I can remember hopping the green line, riding the bus to the green line, and then going from 63rd Street and then having to get on the A train because the A train stopped at, at um, Addison in order to get off and to go to the Cubs games. And there's something about baseball, about parents who take their kids, and something that makes it so American, uh, even though other sports are more popular. What, what, what do well, you attribute that to? I think it's because it's one of the oldest. Um, at, in 1919, there was boxing, horse racing, and baseball. And uh, you're not going to take the girlfriend to the boxing. Uh, horse racing was known to be corrupt. So baseball goes back farther than basketball, uh, pro football, rollerblading, riding your stingray bicycle and making millions of dollars. So it has this, it's, it's older, and I think it's, it has that pastoral quality where, where the, when you have the bases loaded and the pitcher goes into a stretch, nothing's happening. And that tension is right there. So it has this very, you don't, it doesn't have to be pornographic. It can be just this really subtle, that guy's holding the ball, and you know in about three or four seconds, something's going to happen. Tom Ross created the exhibit called The Black Sox a century later at the Beverly Arts Center, and it runs through July 21st. Thanks so much for joining us. Tom. You're very welcome. Thank you, guys. Thanks.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum in for Jerome McDonald, and I'm here with Monica Ng at the Wild Blossom Meadery, and we're looking at a beautiful landscape outside on a sunny day in Beverly. We sure are. Boy, it's beautiful. And just a few yards from here is one of Chicago's oldest rail-to-trail conversions, and it's called the Major Taylor Trail, and it crosses through six southwest side neighborhoods. And with us is the president of Friends of the Major Taylor Trail, Peter Taylor. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Thank you for having me. Hey, so Peter, um, who exactly was Major Taylor? Well, it's very interesting that you're um, talking about the White Sox uh, stink scandal because um, Major Taylor um, was the first African-American sports superstar. Hmm. Um, at the time, uh, in the late uh, eight, um, 1890s, uh, he was um, a teenager and came into the well-developed sport of uh, bicycle racing, which was, at that time, uh, there was horse racing, boxing, and bicycle racing, and bicycle racing was the most popular sport in the world prior to baseball. And so what's the cycling like here on the southwest side of the city? Well, uh, it's growing. Beverly area is a, a very uh, cycling-friendly com- friendly community, and we're trying to uh, promote cycling all throughout the, uh, um, the south side region. It's growing. Uh, the Major Taylor Trail uh, has been in existence for um, about 17, 18 years at this point. And um, we're, we're constantly trying to grow the trail. So where does it go? Tell us where it starts and where it ends. The trail itself starts in uh, Dan Ryan Woods at uh, 87th and Western and uh, goes to Whistler Woods in uh, uh, Riverdale. It crosses the um, uh, Little Calumet River and um, yeah, makes it uh, a, one of the bike trails that connects two uh, forest preserves together. You mentioned some of the beautification um, uh, uh, projects you've had for it. Can you talk about some of those? Well, um, again, it's ongoing. We've tried to create a master plan for the trail. Uh, Everybody in the Friends of the Major Taylor Trail is a community member who's just basically interested in cycling. So uh, the most recent thing is uh, at uh, the uh, 111th Street near uh, Aberdeen, um, where the uh, historical Major Taylor, the first uh, mural that was put on the, the site, uh, the, there is a, um, a scalp- sculpture that has gone up and sort of a viewing area with, with benches and whatnot. And uh, although it's, it's, it was just installed in the fall uh, or early spring, um, it, it, it is, will continue to be developed and beautified as, as it goes forward. Uh, we also have a uh, mural of the Major Taylor's life that uh, goes across the, um, Major, the Little Calumet River. It's one of the largest murals in the world, and you can basically go there, and if you read it all the way across, you'll see um, all of his major accomplishments and uh, images so to speak. of him. So to speak, yes, so to speak. So we're talking with Peter Taylor, who's president of Friends of the Major Taylor Trail. Excuse me. It's one of Chicago's oldest railed trails, bike paths, and it starts right outside of the Wild Blossom Meadery, where we're broadcasting from today. So I wanted to talk about um, issues of um, inclusion. Uh, So WBEZ has reported frequently on the inequities as far as investing in bike lanes and bike paths in um, communities like this in the south and west sides of Chicago, and also, frankly, how um, riders of color tend to be ticketed more than other riders. And so um, I wanted to know, just from your perspective being an African-American, how does this project hit home for you? Well... My basic approach to the, the Major Taylor Trail is the fact that our communities are racked with um, um, disease in terms of uh, heart disease and, and um, uh, diabetes. These are things that are easily treated with exercise. We have this uh, facility that's in our backyard that we can all use um, to help uh, promote uh, and uh, our, our, our health and well-being. And so uh, basically just have to get the word out, get more people involved, more people active. Um, the um, ticketing and isolation and um, that sort of thing, those things certainly exist. Uh, We haven't um, been on the front end of a lot of the investment in the bicycle infrastructure uh, in Chicago. For instance, the Friends of the Major Taylor, the Major Taylor Trail itself was built with a five five million dollar grant. There has been 95 million dollars spent on the Bloomingdale Trail, which is known as the, six, the, 606. the 606, which is uh, you know basically about three miles long and doesn't really go anywhere, where we connect two um, um, forest preserves together and cross six communities. So 
you know, this is the kind of systemic uh, situation that has existed in Chicago for a long time. And uh, we basically just have to work in, 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 in this environment to try to improve things. So tell us a little bit more about um, the person that this trail is named after. Uh, again, uh, Major Taylor, um, who's Marshal Major Taylor, was um, born in Indianapolis. Um, uh, he uh, was basically forced out of Indianapolis as he began to be, uh, uh, get prominent as a bicycle racer. Uh, had to go to um, uh, Massachusetts. Um, he was not allowed to race in uh, the, the southern states in the United States, and so then he expanded uh, with the help of, of uh, the bicycling community and, 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 and many uh, other elements to uh, Europe uh, to be able to race there. He was understood to be uh, the fastest man in the world. He won the world championship in 1899 wow. and um, was, at from that point on, for about 10 years, he was the preeminent force in cycling uh, in, in the world. So uh, I don't want to make this Northside-centric, but <laughs> let's say a Northside bicyclist like me would love to experience the Major Taylor Trail, would love to have a little mead before or after. Uh, what's the best way to do that? Can you take your bike on this Metra here? and, and then? Sure, you could here? take your bike on, on, on Metra uh, on, at certain times, not during rush hour, but at okay. certain times, and, and get off at the 91st Street Station there. Uh, you have to check your maps and figure out which one is the exact, exact one to get on. You could also... Uh, take the Damon Avenue uh, bike lane, which comes down from the north side, and people can come in and it inter- oh. intersects with uh, Major Taylor Trail at 87th Street. And then the, um, the metery here is just a short ride from there. Uh, it's a beautiful place. So last question, Peter. Um, what kind of uh, support do you feel you're getting from the county, from the city, from the state, um, from philanthropists and such? Um, not so much from philanthropists. Uh, the city talks to us. Um, um, well, that's good. They're yeah, talking to you. They're talking. Yes, yeah, that's, that's good. But, um, you know, we want more, and we're pressing for more. So if there is a philanthropist out there who wants to uh, support this trail, uh, how would they go about doing that? Well, one thing I should mention is that we're going to have an event August 10th, um, which will start at uh, 115th Street in Halsted, uh, which is uh, the what we call the uh, Trail Keepers Ride, um, which is uh, on the, an- the 120th anniversary of Major Taylor's uh, world- first world championship in 1899. And the proceeds from that event will go to um, basically developing projects on the trail and helping to maintain some of the things that we already have on the trail here that need to be uh, maintained. So once again, August 10th and where? Um, 115th and... Um, Halston, and uh, there's a website. Um, uh, we, I can probably provide that to you later, but I think it's. Uh, and we'll make sure we'll Major post Taylor it on Trail our website yes. and make sure we tweet it out. And yeah. so, well, thank you so much, Peter. Uh, you're president of Friends of the Major Taylor Trail, a six mile long bike trail that starts right outside of the Wild Blossom Meadery, where we've been broadcasting from. And um, thank you, Greg Fisher, for your hospitality. And thank you to my co host, Monica Ng. Thanks, Steve, and thanks to Colin Ashmead Bobbitt and Mike Gilmore for engineering today, Alexandra Solomon for holding down the fort back in the control room. And Worldview is produced by myself, Steve Bynum, Julian Haida, and thanks for, for the help that we got from Ashes Valentine and Jenny Friedland. I'm Steve Bynum with Monica Ng, in for Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ 91.5 FM. Enjoy the spring weather. <laughs>